Well, this is a, a treat, not only for anybody that might be listening, but also for myself. So we have today Dr. Jeremy Lubb. Is that how you pronounce your last name? You know, it's hard, man. The vowels are all wrong. I've been in the States 30 years. It's never been said right. So it's really okay. if you, if, yeah, if you think of it as L-I-B-U-H, it's closer. So it's Libba. So yeah, so, and I look like a Jeremy, but you know, it's, it's all over the map. So I'm, I, I'm used to just being called twin, but yeah, Jerome Libba is the way it goes, man. But don't Jerome? worry about the last, everybody, yeah, everybody looks at the vowels and it just gets thrown off, man. My oh. entire high school experience uh, in Tennessee and North Georgia, I was just known as Luby or twin. So I'm used Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually think Jerome is a more unique take anyways. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, man, most people, especially being in Atlanta, when they meet me, they're like, are you sure it's not Jeremy? And I go, yeah, because Jerome is a traditionally black name. So it's not a very uh, common thing. There's some closet Jeromes, like Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he's a Jerome, but most people don't know that. I did not so know that. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, man. But thank you for having me, man. What a, what a gift to be with you and, and be in the space. I'm looking forward to nerding out. Yes, sir. Well, um, I actually have written down here. I was, I wrote down a few questions for you. I was uh, a huge fan of whole identity. I think honestly, I first saw the book because I saw a picture of Richard Rohr holding a copy of it. And I was yeah. like, Oh, there's another Enneagram book I don't know about. And as a five, I've already read about 10 or 11 books on it. And so I, I kind of need to find something that says a new take on it. And your yeah. take on it being a whole identity thing was fascinating. That was so cool. Thank yeah. you, man. It was also su surreal. You know, I mean, you, you, I went through the living school program with Richard Rohr and I, I, I navigate a lot of different things in a lot of different spaces as a clinician and a parent and a patient and a partner and all of these other spaces. But one of the things I lean pretty heavily into is kind of alternative orthodoxy, Christian mysticism, a lot of things around, you know, uh, the non-traditional version of what I think Jesus represented. Yes. Uh, and I got some time, uh, you know, the, the ability to be able to say I was able to have lunch with Richard Rohr and talk about my book is, is one of those things that still doesn't feel like it was real. <laughs> uh, so him posting that photo was um, unsolicited and I was so humbled by it. Um, but yeah, you know, I tell people all the time and the, the Enneagram is an incredible tool. It's just a lot of the times when we're talking about it, it's incomplete. You know, it's like mm. somebody comes into the clinic for me and they've got a diagnosis, but that diagnosis is on one system, but nobody's diagnostically looking at them as a complete human being wow. and they deal with things for a long time. So one of the, one of the phrases that I use that sometimes makes it a little bit more uh, palatable and approachable is that we all have pilots, co-pilots, flight attendants, and passengers, and everybody's got baggage, but they're all on the same flight. Right? Oh, that's and great. most of the time, everybody's talking about their pilot. So when you navigate Enneagram, somebody normally says, I am a, uh -huh. and that's a statement of identity. So if you say, I am anything, you want to make sure that it's comprehensive. No, that's, oh, I think that's what I enjoyed about that fresh take. But if I yeah. could, there's a, a, a few things to maybe ask before that, before we yeah. go into full Enneagram is, um, totally. I was looking. I was looking at the bio that you have here on the back. It yeah, says Jerome is referred to as the patient doctor because it was his own quest for neurological well-being that led him to specialize in complex, unresolved neurological cases. Um, I'm not sure if you feel willing to share anything about that, but I, yeah. I didn't. I knew that, but I, I didn't know any part of the story of that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always a bit allergic to self-promotion. I don't actually have any issue sharing the story. I just don't prompt it. And oh. so many people are like, why don't you just talk more about your story in the book? We don't know what that is. So that's that's coming in the in the next year, more of my story. But, um, you know, my history is that I, I had five head injuries before I was 20. Um, I got run over by a car when I was eight. Uh, I'm the only person that I know that was run over by a car and then subsequently spanked by my dad for being run over by that car. So... Oh man! The joys of being the joys of being uh, you know refugee immigrant kids and my dad wasn't sure what would happen if we went to the hospital. I remember him spanking me and telling us we're going to get deported. 
which was a very interesting oh thing as an eight-year-old, right? Uh, but ended up having two concussions in high school uh, and then was hit by a drunk driver at 17 and 20. Uh, so unfortunately, I have structural damage and compression around all four sides of my brainstem. Uh, and that plumbing issue ends up creating uh, a number of different neurological issues. But the, the most relevant one historically has been uh, an average of about eight to 10 full-blown migraines per calendar month for the wow. last 20 years. Yeah. So... You know, navigating those spaces, I went to 21, 21 different specialists over nine years uh, just to get a diagnosis. And when I got the diagnosis, no one knew what to do with it. So the only reason I became a doctor was because I couldn't find a good one. I didn't have any luck wow. with anybody. I mean, my undergrad is in digital animation and film. I used to do music full time. I don't fit the general mold, the five eighth inch gauges and you right. know, beard. So. so, yeah, man, I became a patient just because I needed to try and figure out my own that's and i know my my internet is fighting a bit here so i apologize for the delay yeah that sounds incredibly difficult i can't imagine having to navigate adolescence and even early adulthood while having to deal with something like that um yeah, it was interesting, man. And my dad passed tra uh, pretty suddenly at 14 when I was a freshman in high school. So, you know, I tell my patients all the time, uh, we're fluent in hope and grief, and both of them are welcome, you know? Um, so then as you went into the neuroscience and, well, the whole practice that you do, first off, I think that that's a field that's somewhat misunderstood, sometimes undervalued until people need it, you know? And I think if I could maybe start with one question is, what, do you, what is something about neuroscience that you think the average person would really benefit to know about? Because I feel as though sometimes in the past I've used that word and some people just glaze over. They don't even know what to do with it. But what might the average person yeah. benefit from? Totally. It's a, it's a great question. And stop me at any time if my, if my video locks up on you, John. It looks like the service is pretty good at stitching it together, but... Yeah. Feel free to interrupt me. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I always tell my patients, you know, when you think of neuroscience or neuroplasticity, just think of, I need to learn how my brain works and how to use it, right? Mm -hmm. Neuroscience is, is, is basically the fancy term for understanding how we're built and how we function, right? So if somebody goes, man, my microwave is super complex, right? But it's mm -hmm. not complicated to use, right? I have no idea how my microwave works. But I know how to use it. <laughs> okay? Right. Yeah. Neuroscience is neuroscience is a complicated conversation around the engineering in the brain, not the use of the brain. Right. So in the world of functional neurology, I think one of the biggest things that sometimes gets missed with neuroscience and practical life is the more we understand how the brain is built and how it how it functions, the more effectively we can use it. Right. Mm. So something practical that everybody can do is go, you know, if I wanted to learn how to have more self-awareness. Like there's a thing about self-development and understanding myself. Well, you know, the, the brain's ability to do self-awareness is built on how aware we are of ourself as a body. So think of it practically when you're walking around in your own bedroom at night and the lights are off, how confident are you that you can make it from your bed to the bathroom without running your foot into the bedpost, right? Our awareness changes when we don't have vision, right? So one of the things that you can do, I tell people, is do some really basic, safe, everyday activities, but do them without your eyes open. Brush your hair, put on your shoes, tie your shoes, take a bite of food safely, right? Wow. Uh, brush your teeth. You know, all of these things that we can do, uh, when you close your eyes, it actually turns up the volume on the part of your brain that knows where you are, and that actually on-ramps your ability to increase your own self-awareness. So if we struggle with self-awareness, doing safe activities with our eyes closed will actually exercise that part of the brain that helps me to understand where I am, and wow. that actually helps me to then understand who I am. That's how it's actually built, right? So it's just one example of how we can use neuroscience in a really practical way. So that just immediately made me think of people that maybe have visual difficulties, maybe not even full out blind. Do they have a, a different uh, competency about spatial awareness because of it? Huge, yeah. So there's lots of research around the word called proprioception. 
And when you lose, you've got you've got a lot of different sensory systems. We normally think of five, right? Uh-huh. Um, but you can lose taste, touch, sight, sound, and smell, and your brain will figure it out, even if you lose all five of them. Uh, but movement is the most important. If you don't have a relationship with movement, your brain will die. There's great research about what happens to an astronaut's brain when they come back from space. Uh, but when you have somebody who's blind or deaf, there are other sensory systems. It's like, think of it like a shared budget of resources. It's the equity mm. of the resources that mm. if you lose one of the employees, the additional resources that would have been given to that person are then redistributed uh, or, or distributed to the other sensory systems. So there's research around, is a great study, I'll have to find it for you, but around a guy who was born what's called cortically blind. So he didn't go blind. He just was born without any potential for vision, wow. but he became an artist who could through touch and feel understand depth perception and he could actually paint city centers in a depth perceptive way. Having never seen, never wow. understood depth perception, he could make paintings that would actually give somebody a sense of the length of a road or an alleyway in a city. You know, so yeah, so your your other sensory systems will come up a notch because when you take a sensory system away, it's like turning the volume down on one instrument on stage. And you don't even have to turn the volume up on the other instruments. They naturally feel and are experienced as a little bit louder because they're not competing with other sensations. And then you made it sound as though that then feeds really easily into other types of self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so what would it look like? You know, think of how self-awareness and vision and movement play into things like anxiety. You know, one third of all people who have a movement disorder will develop a full-blown anxiety disorder. One third of all people who have anxiety will develop a movement disorder. Well, why does that happen if it's chronic wow. for long enough? Well, think about the basics. Like I said, walking around in your room with the lights off and you're a little less confident. Mm. But think about walking down a set of stairs that you've walked down a hundred times, a thousand times, and you miss that last step. Mm. And as you miss that last step, you realize you're not touching the ground. Which version of you shows up? Is it the version of you that puts your hand on your chest, checks in, and goes, I welcome this moment, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, when you fall down the stairs, your body in a supportive and appropriate way is designed to make you profoundly anxious in real time as a reflex. It's not even a choice. It's a reaction, right? Mm. So when we lose our balance, literally, mm-hmm. we become anxious. So when we start to feel unstable or uncertain or uncomfortable, anxiety is a normal byproduct to that because we're concerned that we're going to fall and hurt ourselves. That applies both literally and metaphorically when you're looking at things like physical health, mental health, emotional health, relational health, Mm -hmm. spiritual health. If I don't feel like the ground that I'm walking on or the foundation that I have, think of the, the number of people over the last decade that have started to try to understand that maybe the foundation that they have relationally or spiritually about what they believe isn't solid anymore. Anxiety as a byproduct to that experience is super normal. It's actually appropriate mm. because if we lose our balance, we become anxious. It's whether or not we stay anxious once we become stable again and how we find stability that changes. So you can take a practical like losing your balance physically mm-hmm. and apply that process to what happens when you lose your foundation or your stability or your concrete understanding metaphorically. Oh, that's in, that's fascinating. That that makes sense because um, I recently left working in church world. Okay, but yeah, I was fascinated because there seems to be a certain defensiveness, and you just kind of explained that that groundlessness. When things are shifting that much, you could interpret that as potentially adventurous, but also anxiety producing. Absolutely. And it depends on somebody's stamina and their comfort level with being disrupted, right? Or having things change. Mm -hmm. Think of the idea of any faith-based system that's heavily orthodox, right? Mm -hmm. If you introduce something that rocks the boat a little bit or shifts or unsettles the foundation, there is a lot of people in a lot of different positions, either as a parishioner or a participant or a leader, a pastor, a rabbi, whoever's in the, the, the relationship of that spiritual dynamic that a lot of people are very, very intent on keeping things exactly the way they are, either conservative or preservative, to preserve it or conserve it. Mm. And the reason being is it's so darn uncomfortable when you feel like you're no longer on solid ground. If somebody shakes your foundation, but then we're looking at scriptural context of going faith untested is no faith at all. 
But then the reality is some people realize that if I feel unstable or somebody questions the stability and the concreteness of my belief, that is too provocative. Mm -hmm. The ability to sit in that conversation is, is too triggering. So instead of building the resilience for an open-handed conversation like Jesus showed a lot of times, they're like, we're just not going to have those conversations. And interestingly enough, it's actually a projection that it's not someone's comfort level with having the conversation and still maintaining their faith. It's actually an indication that they're afraid to have that conversation and manage the degree of instability that the conversation will introduce. Oh, right? wow. Yeah, so it's a really interesting thing of, you know, why, why is it that when you try to have a counter-cultural conversation, mm -hmm. it's met as disagreement rather than discourse. And I think this is a thing with the nuance in what we do in the world of, of, of clinic and, and human care and self-care and spiritual care and all of the health, health aspects is um, you can't really grow and you can't really exercise your faith without breaking a sweat, getting a little uncomfortable and probably getting a little sore. But yeah. we live in a world where um, understanding discomfort is not the same thing as trauma is not something that we're often taught. And they're very different, right? I, I could go in a million different directions with questions now. You know, my parents did a great job of instilling a growth mindset in my brother and I growing up. And you referenced the word stability there and how so many people feel anxious when that stability is taken away. And yeah. I think about the word stability sometimes in connection to resiliency. That actually one of the best things we can do is find a way to build our resiliency rather than hold on to stability at all costs. Is that 100%. anywhere close to something good? It is. It's incredibly good. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. And you can go from a spiritual conversation, a brain-based conversation, and any grammatic conversation. And there's words for each kind of aspect of how somebody shows up. But stability connects really, really significantly from a mental health process, from a thought process to six. Mm -hmm. So stability mentally is six. Stability physically is nine. Um, but then stability in terms of goal setting and being able to maintain that idea of what you're pursuing is actually three. So there's a couple of different ways to look at it. But stability as a whole, yeah, I mean, your relationship with, with resilience is realistically your ability to metabolize being unstable, right? So the definition that I, I communicate to patients is resilience by definition is knowing the difference between discomfort and trauma as quickly as possible. The, and the difference, difference between, between discomfort and trauma. and trauma. Okay. And the difference between discomfort and trauma is the length of time for recovery. Right. So if I go into the gym and I do a workout and I'm sore for three days, I'm uncomfortable. I'm not traumatized. If I'm sore for a week, I might have overdone it. If I'm sore for two weeks, I've hurt myself. If I'm sore for four weeks, I've injured myself. Right. If I'm sore for three months, I've traumatized my body. There's very different things wow. between being uncomfortable, being in pain, having an injury and being traumatized. Those are different things. But case in point, uh, you know, not saying that anything has happened unique in the last two years that turned the entire planet into a pineapple <laughs> upside down cake. But uh -huh. one of the things that you can look at is one of the phrases, there's a couple of different phrases that I give people to think through. And one of them is to ask yourself, am I unsafe or am I uncomfortable? Because being unsafe is a life-threatening situation. And most of the time, if we don't recognize that we're uncomfortable versus unsafe, our, our brain and our body appropriately move us into a space where we think and mm. experience that encounter as life-threatening, as a potential trauma. And what we're not realizing is that at the end of the day, if we reflect on it and ask ourselves a hard question, because we have to do hard things in order to grow, you don't go into the gym, do a workout and leave and not have having broken a sweat or feeling sore. If you do an exercise that didn't break a sweat and didn't leave you a little bit sore, it didn't do anything for you, right? Mm. So when we're trying to figure out how to navigate hard spaces, one of the really helpful things to do is to start with, based on my current understanding, that's a very good term that researchers and investigators and observers use. Is, based you know on what? my current understanding, okay. Yeah, is you know what? A researcher can spend, and it's another topic for another thing, but I think the, the, the people who have the most incredible 
sustainable, concrete faith are actually researchers or scientists um, because they can spend 40 years believing in something. And when their research and their answers mm. factually, statistically and evidentially prove them wrong, it increases their faith in the process. It doesn't kill it. Right. Wow. So we could, we could learn a lot on what it looks like to get our answer and the answer not be what we wanted. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what, one of the things, one of the phrases that I use when we're trying to say, based on my current understanding, is to ask yourself the hard question, is my way of life being threatened or is my actual life being threatened? Because if your way of life is being threatened and you don't identify that, you are going to react, not respond, but react mm. as if your life is in danger. So if a black person gets pulled over in a car and they are concerned that their way of life is being threatened, that's not accurate. If they're concerned that their actual life is in danger, that's accurate. If a white person gets pulled over, their way of life for wherever they're headed to is probably in danger. Very few white people get pulled over and think their actual life is in danger. Mm -hmm. Both of them are appropriate to that person's confirmation bias and their lived experience. Right. But it gives me an opportunity to sit back and go, I don't start by saying the way that you feel and the way that you experience the world is incorrect. I'm asking myself, based on my current understanding, would I be able to connect the dots on why that experience was so volatile for you personally? Wow. So I can give grace to the person who doesn't want to have the conversation about even the conversation. I'm not talking about the agreement or the accord or the peace treaty. I'm talking just a dialogue mm -hmm. around something like gender mm -hmm. and LGBTQIA plus conversations, not affirming it, just discussing it, being able to go, why is it so provocative for that person to even have the conversation? Mm. Well, it's probably because they're in a space where it's very threatening for them. And I, with the grace that I have in me, can go, I can understand why that would be threatening for you. Or if I don't, I can say, based on my current understanding, I don't know why you're panicking. Can you help me understand that? Right. Right. And that's what we call grace, knowing that there's something happening you don't fully understand. So be patient for long enough to understand it, right? And that that also leads me to think of that word compassion. I think yeah. it breaks down calm meaning with and passio suffer. Compassion is learning mm -hmm. to suffer with other people. I guess in your terminology just now, through their discomfort or even in their trauma. Absolutely, because the brain is processing that experience as suffering, right? I have three kids that are six and under. When my three-year-old, who's about to be four next month, comes up to me this morning and has dropped part of her breakfast snack on the floor, mm. and she is moving into a full-on depressive expression of the big emotions that she's feeling, that really there's no point in continuing on. I mean, life has ended as she knows it. Because that piece of food has fallen on the floor. Now, obviously, as a 38-year-old looking at my three-year-old, I know that that's not true. Right. But her, because I tell people all the time, only one of us in this conversation has a fully developed brain, and it's not her. Right. right. She's still working on building the hardware and the software to understand that that's okay. I can pick that up, and I can help her through that. Mm -hmm. So compassion is not fixing the problem for her. Compassion is not dismissing what she's experiencing. Compassion is recognizing and being with her as she suffers through that thing. Because for her right now, it is very hard. And you know what? In eight seconds, it may not be anymore. But in the moment where it hurts for her, I don't fix it or dismiss it. And that's the difference with somebody moving in compassion. It's not about fixing it. It's not about dismissing it. It's about being present to it. Probably the best practice that I've ever seen is when the Jewish uh, or, or anybody who's in, in a, a Jewish culture practices Shiva, and you allow for the laments of the person who's grieving, and you don't do anything about it. In fact, you don't even talk, because what could you possibly say that would help that person feel better when they're processing that level of grief? Being mm -hmm. present, helpful, right? But trying to be somebody who support, supports by fixing the problem or dismissing the problem, that's not compassion. That's yeah. a completely different experience. You know, and that maybe that's a good way to talk about the Enneagram because when I brought it up in my the class I teach with college students, uh, I said that the Enneagram to me feels like it's a really great tool for self awareness as well as self compassion and even compassion for other people because when you can understand their 
internal worldview, the, their value system in some ways, it's kind of easier to have compassion for how they see and experience the world around them. So Absolutely. do you bring the Enneagram a lot into your practice, I, even if it's in the back of your brain? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's in, it's in the back of my head. Cause I, I can't see a person that I'm sitting in front of anymore without considering their, their neurological process, how the brain is working, overlaying that with an enneagrammatic kind of lens, overlaying that with a spiritual lens. Um, but in all reality, my job, especially as a compassionate provider, why I'm known as the patient doctor, not only because I'm a patient who became a doctor, but also <laughs> happen to be a doctor who's patient, which is rare, um, is that in understanding some of these things as efficiencies, right? So I tell people I'm a personal trainer for the brain. If mm. somebody comes into my office as a personal trainer and they need to exercise their legs and they're already strong in their upper body and their arms, it's going to be very important for me to understand that I don't need to spend the next week with them working on their upper body and their arms exclusively. There's going to be a relationship between all of it. But what is their goal? What is their objective? And where are their efficiencies? Where are their strengths that I can leverage? Where are the opportunities for them to build strength, to do conditioning? So if we think about that from an Enneagram standpoint, when I have a patient in front of me and they have a history of physical or sexual trauma, for instance, mm. and I'm 62280 male, and I'm in the office, wow. understanding their relationship with physical presence, with assertive energy, with mm -hmm. intimidating body language, or even with just sheer size or male presence as a gender, being aware of their bias to move away from certain types of energy or language or mm -hmm. engagement or speed, uh, I can do that through a neurological lens by saying, hey, you're a bit allergic to adrenaline. You're a bit allergic to your heart rate going up. You're a bit allergic to the sensation of another body in the room with you. It feels intimidating just by presence. Mm -hmm. That also happens to correlate with these parts of the brain. That also happens to correlate with these parts of the Enneagram. So instead of avoiding them entirely, what does it look like to give you an, in, an interaction with it that is safe and approachable? that is going to end up creating a bit of discomfort, mm -hmm. but not introduce trauma or re-traumatize because what most folks are asking for is not for me to avoid their weaknesses. Mm. It's asking for an effective and realistic strategy to develop some stamina in that area. So it's not so triggering so often. Right. right? And I can do that through brain language, Enneagram language, uh, neuropsych language, you know, we mm. can do it through spiritual language. It's a case of finding the translation tool that works for them. Because I tell everybody all the time, the Enneagram is just a diagnostic. It's not a diagnosis, right? When I work with somebody, my case history is their story. I just need to know their story. The exam and the diagnostics give me some objective understanding, the Enneagram being one of those tools. Wow. And then how I actually navigate intervention and clinical intuition and clinical acumen and ac application, that's the workout. Right. So what's your story? What do we wow. understand in terms of how you objectively function and, and what's involved in the equation? And then what do we do in terms of a workout? And then we look at all of that and go, you know what? It's not a case of if, but when we're going to have to course correct. Let's be aware of that. Let's mm. move through that. You know, I, I've heard it put that the, the Enneagram is a helpful, I guess you could say a wisdom tradition. It's been handed down. There's different interpretations of it. But sure. I'm curious, what is the current status of the intersection of neuroscience and Enneagram? Are there starting to be more and more studies and research about that? There is some. It's not It's not a ton, right? Yeah. I mean, the, my, the book that I released was the first one on the, on the, the neuroscience of the Enneagram or brain-based model. Mm. Um arguing that all, we have all nine numbers in every aspect of the Enneagram within us as a whole brain. Mm. Um, but you know, there's, some really, there's some really interesting research that's been done out of Europe on the Enneagram and sexuality uh, in terms oh. of how uh, masculine and feminine energy or brains process the world. You know, is it different for men versus women or male, male passing or masculine passing, feminine passing human beings? Um, and I think you know, the reality is, is there's going to be more coming um, but research around the Enneagram, uh, I think, is a bit tough because there's no standardized methodology for it. There's no way Not to like object. the big five or something else? 
Yeah, exactly. So I think that they are one of the things that I'm I'm petitioning for, and I'm hopefully we'll see it. It's not going to be now. It's not going to be next year. It's probably going to be three five years from now. Um, is I'm trying to I'm trying to create a pipeline of clinicians and residents in my clinic to help me with the clinical care so I can work more on the content creation uh, to have a larger impact. And one of them is to do studies on validating the whole identity method because it gives you statistical, it gives you statistical evidence for where you're at and you can actually do it year over year over year. So I have folks that I've been working with that we have, we have a statistical framework for what they've done as a human being statistically and and from an evidence, evidence-based standpoint over the course of 40 years. So how have their numbers and their scores changed from four years ago compared to now with four different tests to be able to see those trend lines, right? Wow. And see if it connects with the improvement or the change or the lack thereof in, in terms of their uh-huh. health and their goals, right? So right now, I think the research around the Enneagram is going to be my confirmation bias, right? I think the research around the Enneagram is still going to be a bit lacking uh, uh-huh. because it's still a single number system. Uh, and it's not robust enough to, to justify how somebody shows up in the world when you you keep looking at it. It's like using a camera and you only use one lens on that camera. Mm. If you have an older camera, maybe, but the newer cameras, I mean, you can change out as many lenses as you want. The body's the same, but the lens is different. So if I'm using the Enneagram, the body is the person, but the lens is the number by which you look for wow. the world in that moment based on your objective, right? Mm-hmm. Like for me, I'm low in five and four. Five and four, not super high for me. Everybody thinks it's high for me. Five is my lowest number, right? <laughs> so okay. it's, it's one of those things where it's it, when you understand application versus motivation, it's different, right? I'm, right? I'm motivated by the person, not the data. The data is a means to an end for me. But you stick me into a room where all I get to do is just gather information, but I don't have any feedback loop from another person or another body or another interaction, and you leave me there for an hour by myself, yeah. I will start to get real uncomfortable because I spent nine months in the womb with another person. I don't have any context of being completely <laughs> on my own. Right? Right. Yeah. So it takes a lot of work. It's a big workout for me. A classic example, I always joke with folks, how you know you're low in five is, or high in five is what is your relationship with an owner's manual? You know what I think an owner's manual is? It's a waste of paper, right? But people <laughs> who are high in five, they're like, you're not actually going to put that together without the owner's manual. I'm like, I actually didn't find the owner's manual. I'm not sure if one was in the box. And somebody's like, there's always an owner's manual in the box, right? For me, I don't need it. I don't want it. It's too much information, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I think why coming back to your original, your original point. Um, yeah, I think this is, this is the case of where the research in the Enneagram is going to be mm. much more likely if we start understanding like one basic question that I think would blow up or open up the Enneagram tremendously is being able to understand the trauma linked to your lowest number or the inefficiency and fear linked to your lowest number and why you avoid that. Why are we avoiding our lowest number? Right. Oh, wow. Does anybody know? Like I've never met a single person when I asked them, do you know what your lowest number is and why that could answer that question? I think if we could answer that question and we could understand the concept of how we function as human beings, mm-hmm. we would we would settle more arguments, more debates, and also move towards a healthier version of ourselves, our families, our communities, and the world as a whole if we actually understand what it is that we're running away from in the mm-hmm. lowest spaces, right? That's the actual shadow work. That's the actual that's trauma That's shadow work. stuff, yeah. You know, yeah, that's... Your book was really fascinating, especially since I think by and large, most other books that I had read about the Enneagram talk about you are your number or you hover around your number, whatever you want to say, that you're connected to your stress or integration numbers and your wings and whatnot. However, yours did that fascinating thing of finding a thesaurus and going through all the numbers until you find a title for that number that works for you. And I Absolutely. thought what was so pro- so impressive about it was that shift for me to realize what are my – five is just my competency and four is my next competency. And it, it actually led me to stop and recognize like, wow, maybe I'm actually underdeveloped in my versatility in those other numbers. And so being a more well-rounded personality – that was awesome. <laughs> I didn't read that in another book yeah. anywhere else. That was very unique to yours. Yeah. 
I appreciate it. Yeah, and that's a, the thing of helping folks understand. I mean, through a lifetime of experiences, you've developed efficiencies in certain areas, just like fluencies, right? Like I joke with folks, I immigrated to you know Knoxville, Tennessee in 1990 from Congo and Zaire, uh, born in South Africa to Zimbabwean parents. My mom was born in England, but raised in Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe. I've lived in five countries, 13 states, and went to 11 schools before I graduated high school. Right. I spoke three languages when I came to the country. My dad spoke 13. So if I asked them, if somebody asks me, where are you from? How do I possibly answer that? Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. I can tell you I'm from Earth. <laughs> I can tell you that much for sure. Confidently, I can tell you I'm an Earthling. Right. Um, and the reason I say that is based on the, the, the situation and the circumstances of my life, I have the capacity and also the permission and also the agency to move if I realize that I live on the planet, right? Mm. So if I'm in an Enneagram global experience as a human being and I have been raised, live, and most of the people that I know have been born and raised in a particular town, then yeah, we all speak the same language. And for most of us, we will stay in the town that we were raised in. But what happens if you move and you go to a different place and you don't speak that language? Mm-hmm. You're either mm-hmm. going to learn that language, you're going to stumble your way through, you're going to get a translation guide, either a literal one or a person. And we have to figure out how to speak these other languages. And whatever you're most efficient in, whatever we normally call our type, is the most second nature default language that we use to move through the world. It's just what our wow. fluency is. Right. Uh-huh. I can't go to a Mexican restaurant and order my meal in Spanish fluently, but both my twin brother and my older brother can. They speak Spanish fluently. Why? Right? Because they learned it. Uh-huh. But that wasn't our first language. So I think your your type is just your first language or your most efficient language that you use to move through the world. But being able to speak any of the other types or subtypes or instincts or centers, you know, you wanna you wanna be a whole person and a whole person and here's the thing. The cool thing is, is you can live in the same town your whole life and have an incredible life. I think knowing your type and only your type gives you the highest probability of being a healthy person if you stay in that space. Mm. But if you intend to travel or interact with other people, it's probably going to be helpful to learn some other dialects. You know, That's a very helpful analogy. As I was thinking about it, um, I, I think I heard it put, and you, you actually could probably correct me if I'm wrong. I heard it put that it's usually new people, places, and new problems are usually what cause our brains to make new connections because the old pathways, they don't necessarily work when you meet new people, places, or problems. And so it's so fascinating that when people would go on pilgrimages, they would come back a different person, but actually their neurology just completely changed completely changed because it's a if you take all of the literal aspects of who we are physically mentally emotionally relationally and spiritually mm-hmm. and think of it through the lens of learning to ride a bike okay okay when you first learn to ride a bike unless you get lucky okay <laughs> when you learn to ride a bike that junk is clumsy learning to walk is clumsy mm-hmm. okay walking mm-hmm. technically is nothing more than a controlled series of falls and so is everything else in life right we just get so familiar with it that we end up forgetting that we're doing it. I had a patient in here yesterday who had a brain tumor removed nine years ago. It was supposed to be a standard procedure. He came out of it as a quadriplegic. And he's in my office nine years later trying to see if he can walk again, right? When you're 36 and you're learning to walk again, it's clumsy. Mm. So why I say that is when you're in these spaces that you are in a place that is so familiar, that it's Mm. so second nature, it goes from a conscious experience to autopilot. 95 to 97% of what happens to us on a daily basis is unconscious, subconscious, autopilot processing, right? We're, it's not that we use 3 to 5% of our brain. It's that we're only aware of 3 to 5% of what happens during the day, right? That's, that's a completely different experience, right? And think about it. From a corporate structure in a company, how much statistically can a CEO be present to that's happening in the entire organization? Absolutely. Yeah. Steve Jobs didn't go down and watch every iPhone being built. Elon Musk doesn't go down and watch every car being built. He did for a period of time when he was really trying to motivate people, but that's a different energy. (laughs) My point is that your your brain from an efficiency standpoint isn't present to everything because it can't be, right? It's trying to be as efficient as possible. So why does that matter to what you're saying? If I'm in the same environment all the time, doing the same thing all the time, it's not just that it becomes familiar 
It's that it becomes something that I lose awareness of entirely. Think of what happens when your leg is still for long enough in the same position, in the same spot, in the same activity. The same level of activity will actually shut the leg off. The leg falls asleep. So metaphorically, half of us are falling asleep in our life because we're not introducing any novel stimulation. There's nothing new, right? My it's, not that you're going out, it's not that you're going out and constantly seeking adventure. It's that you're allowing yourself to encounter new people, new questions, new problems. The brain is built, integrated, and maintained and sustained off of novel movement. Body movement first, relational movement second, understanding third, and then collectively the relational integration of all of those things as a human being, right? Wow. So when my one-year-old one is moving around, he's starting to learn how to move his body. My three, almost four-year-old is learning how to communicate with another person in relationship. But my six-year-old is now starting to understand the, the world completely different from a curiosity standpoint, from a mm -hmm. deductive reasoning and logic standpoint. Those are completely different stages. So if we're not introducing new body experiences, new relationship and emotional-based encounters, or new mental processes mm -hmm. and challenges, our brain is going to start to hit autopilot, and then we don't develop new connections. So when you're talking about new connections, you're talking about new connections physically, mentally, and emotionally. Wow. So all of those things are what keep the brain alive. And that's why somebody could live in the same town for 40 years, go to the same job, and now be 70, but relatively still be the same person they were at 30. They've just aged. Yeah, because their brain has figured out how that, I mean, that going to that job, that town, that marriage, that space is like riding a bike. They don't even have to think about that's it. Incredible. And you know what happens if you don't think about it? You're not thinking. You're on autopilot. And that's great. It makes for a really reliable thing. I mean, air, air travel is the safest way to travel, you know? Mm. And the reason it's the safest way to travel is because most of it is not done by the pilot. The reason driving in a car is a lot harder right now and a lot more unsafe is because you have an actual person making decisions. Okay. In <laughs> real time, in plane, yeah. Yeah, in real time. The reason a plane is traditionally statistically so much safer is because it's on autopilot for most of it. So it's a really safe thing to do. It doesn't mean that it's going to be very dynamic. And if that's what you're going for, if that's your goal, then that's great. But right. if you want to say, hey, you know what, I'd really love to not even necessarily learn a new language, but maybe learn a new dialect, right? Think about right. it. You're in, you're, did you say you're east of Philly or west Philly? Oh, uh, just west of Philly. So you're West Philadelphia. Were you born and raised? I'm sure. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> I couldn't pass it up. I couldn't pass it up. But if you're in West Philadelphia or west of Philadelphia and I'm in Atlanta and I go an hour and a half north to North Georgia, folks are going to start sounding a little bit different up in the North Georgia mm -hmm. parts of the world. You know what I'm saying? They don't mm -hmm. sound the same as when you're down here in Atlanta. Now, everybody's talking English. If you go up to New York, right, and everybody's got them hard consonants, it's still English. It's a completely different dialect. That's right. Right? So what I'm saying is, is it's not necessarily something where you have to new, learn a new language, but maybe encountering a slightly different experience or community, It's there's still plenty of ways to do it. Because if I take people who have never been on a plane and never traveled outside of their town, and I put them on a plane and I drop them into a developing country that doesn't speak their language, that's too big of an ask. But to ask them to travel 10 miles out of town and go to somewhere they've never been and just buy groceries, that mm. might be a starter. That wow. might be interesting to do, right? It's, it's, it's just like a workout and just like therapy. It has to be done in the appropriate intensity, the appropriate frequency, and the appropriate duration, which means how strong is the experience, how often is it happening, and how long does it last for? If we can find the right amount, then we can actually see what's a healthy level of development. But the first thing is we got to be aware and then we have to desire that for some reason, mm. but it's going to be relevant to what we're pursuing as a life-giving opportunity, right? So it's like one last thing I'll say quick, and I'm, I appreciate your patience and letting me belabor this, but it's one of the reasons that I was telling people I don't, I, neurologically, I completely disagree with the name uh, stress and growth path or integration and disintegration lines. They, neurologically, it doesn't work. Neuropsychologically, it doesn't work. Because in order to grow a muscle, you have to put that muscle under a significant stress load. The stress path is a growth path. The stress the path, path is, is a growth path. Okay. And the growth path is dependent on stress. They are both. It's not an either or. In order to grow, you have to be stressed. If you're oh. stressed, there's an opportunity for growth. It's both. They're two-way streets. Right? Yeah. 
So most of the time when someone, now some of the teachers are starting to, to teach on it, but understanding that stress doesn't mean avoid. Stress yeah. means be aware of how you engage in it. And then there's a huge opportunity to engage it, but mm-hmm. just be conscientious. It's going to cost you more because you're not efficient at it yet. It's right. actually what they're trying to say. Like for me, high and two, I don't look at four as my growth and eight as my stress. I look at both of them as ways that I become more mature or mm-hmm. I show up immature, right? So if I'm responding immaturely as a two, I'm going to pull in immature responses from four and eight at the same time. But if I'm responding in a mature way as a two, mm-hmm. I'm going to pull in four and eight in mature ways at the same time. There, there, there are two-way straights that are more tied to your state and stage of mat- maturity than they are about the appropriateness or the inappropriateness of stress. Yeah, that's or really good. Yeah. Um, I have one last question, if you don't mind. You already answered mind. one of them that I had written down, which was I have written down what is something about uh, if you had unlimited funds, what would you want to explore? And you kind of did in the next three to five years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I can tell you. I add to it. Um, I'm building a five-tier curriculum that moves from people who've never heard of functional neurology or the Enneagram, or and just starting with how how do I understand myself, right, mm-hmm. all the way up to a you know fifth-tier PhD level. Um, so the five tiers, in a layman's terms, are first how to understand yourself, second how to take care of yourself, third is how to take care of other people. Fourth is how to train other people to take care of other people oh, who wow. are taking care of themselves and understood themselves. And then the fifth tier is how to treat all of those people. So it moves through in wow. terms of the, the credentialing and the capacity because I, I have plenty of, of anecdotal, uh, non-research, evidence-based experiences as of yet um, for how you can apply these strategies in clinical settings to incredible success and incredible degrees. So for me, if I had all the money and all the time in the world, I'd, I'd finish the curriculum because everything's inside the curriculum. But it's it's in process at the moment, so we'll see. I'll get it. That sounds exciting, yeah. man. That's yeah. got to be nice to actually be creative with the things that you've been learning too. It yeah. is, you know, and this is why I tell people the thing that's been so helpful for me is to know who my pilots are. You know, the people who are in the cockpit for me, my my pilot is two, but my two co-pilots are six and three. Those are very very high for me. So three wow. being really goal oriented and trying to succeed and create because threes are motivated by creativity. It's not a four piece. It's a three piece. Um, it's different. Um, and I can explain that because I know you got a lot of four in you, but it's very different. And when you understand uh-huh. the difference, it's very important. Okay. But I, creativity is important for me. I'm heart focused. My highest sensor is heart. I lead with two. And three is a co-pilot, but then six is in there even a little bit stronger than three going, let's make a plan. Let's make a strategy. Yeah. Let's look to the future and I have to be really aware that those are both skills and also dangers for me because my two can get overwhelmed and how I care for others. So self-care is something I have to be really intentional about. Mm-hmm. My six can get very anxious and start to worry about the forecast in the future and mm-hmm. I have to be present. And then the three can constantly feel like I'm failing even though I know I'm succeeding, but I don't feel like I am a success. So Absolutely. I have to reframe all of that. So the two, six, and three together help me to understand who's in the cockpit and who's in the driver's seat. Uh, so those things can there. But I'll tell you quick. Um, the reason there's a difference between three and four for creativity mm-hmm. is the root word for, for creativity is create. Fours are constantly creating internally. Their imagination is running wild. Their experience with with um uh, developing this 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 interior world there's no shortage of what is being manifested internally in a four but for them to create it and actually birth it into the world requires three so oh. you gotta realize four is the gestation space that's where the pregnancy okay. is the delivery uh-huh. is in three so if you see most artists how many artists it's a classic phrase of how many artists have died with their music or their art inside them, right? Mm-hmm. That's because if you're a four that doesn't produce something, doesn't oh, create wow. something, then you are a four with a five wing. You're thinking about what you feel all the time, but that doesn't mean you're doing anything with it. To actually create it and produce it as a benchmark by which you can be graded and assessed as successful or not, you have to achieve what's inside you. You have to wow. produce it, right? So the creativity 
is actually the three because the three can't live in the world without being weighed and measured by what they've given you. It's mm. also their sleight of hand, their magic trick, that if you look at what they make, you won't look at them. So you can judge what they did rather than who they are. And that's wow. very different. Four wants you to judge who they are. In fact, they're so fluent in it, they've got to take a step back from constantly assessing the value of themselves. That's not how a three works. The three is trying to create something so they can distract you. Um, so a little bit different. Four is imagination. Three is creativity. Two different things. You caused problems for me right there. <laughs> you have to rethink some number of things. Yeah. Of course, that that would be a five thing to say. I have to go rethink yeah. some things too. <laughs> I appreciate that. But for anybody who's listening, the way that I think through this, just so you know, is I, I love the narrative tradition and a lot of traditions in the Enneagram. I combine mm -hmm. all of those. Uh -huh. uh, but from the practical of going, what, how do I know my lowest number and what are you talking about with this? Uh, I actually recommend the two tests on the Enneagram Institute, the READY, R-H-E-T-I, and the IBQ. Um, if you have those and you move back from thinking I am this type or this is my instinct globally, mm -hmm. and you just go, those are the people that are in the driver's seat or those are the pilots, then you can see all of the other passengers oh, and the lowest wow. numbers. Uh, the lowest numbers are the ones that are the most hesitant or the most restricted from being given the opportunity to be in the driver's seat or the cockpit. Um, but those numbers are pretty, after doing this for 10 years with that particular test, the right. statistical reliability of it is pretty darn high when you look at all of the information as who you are, not just the top. Gotcha. Yeah, that's the Riso Hudson one. That one looks really good to me. Listen, um, I want to be respectful of your time. This was, this was a real joy for me. I really appreciate <laughs> it, man. If I ever make yeah. it out to Atlanta, I'd be happy to buy you a coffee or something. Um, 100%, man. I'm absolutely. all down. I'm all up for that. Absolutely. Okay. And then I get all your questions, John. I want to make sure that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's good enough. There's That's more than enough. And you know what? When you drop volume two of this, yeah. I'd be super interested in having you again. All right. Absolutely, so let me bro. say, have a great day. All right. Likewise. I appreciate yeah. the opportunity. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much.